Today's scripture reading is Proverbs 5, 1 through 23. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O son, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take they fill their fill of your strength, and your labor go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers, or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm on the brink of utter ruin in the assembly, assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a gracious doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, being intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let's turn to the passage the Forrest just read, Proverbs chapter 5. As we're continuing through this book, Proverbs 5, it's similar to what we've seen already in this book. Once again, we have a father teaching his son. And if you remember at the end of Proverbs 4 last week, Proverbs 4 ends with this impassioned plea to guard your heart. Y'all remember that? Why? Because it's the wellspring of your life. And part of that, chapter 5, is guarding your body. This is about guarding your body. More specifically, you might say it's about guarding your sex life. My first thoughts from Proverbs 5 are this, as I've been studying it throughout the week. God is not prudish when it comes to our sexuality, neither is he crass. God is both tasteful and candid in his description of sex, and he describes it in the context of marriage, and he also tells us about the dangers of sex outside of marriage. And my job this morning is to advocate for everybody in this room, all ages, for sex within the context of a biblical marriage. That's 
part of my job, the Old Testament scholar, Dwayne Garrett, he said this, said the Bible does not hide from or obscure the power of the temptation to elicit sex in language that is refreshingly clear and direct without itself indulging in titillation. The text warns the reader of the debacle that awaits him should he succumb in this area and at the same time promises profound sexual joy to those whose hearts are chaste and loving. So it's not just about the negative, it's also let's look to the positive. And then Garrett says this, and I take this to heart as the, the pastor of this church. If the church is to do its duty, it must be no less clear in its teaching to assume that nice Christian young people do not struggle in these areas or to speak only in whispers and innuendo on the grounds that they are inappropriate for the Christian pulpit is no less than gross neglect of duty on the church's part. So God has given us his word. God speaks directly on this issue. And part of my job as we're working through Proverbs is to address this issue. And, and let's be clear about this. Sex and marriage are God's creations. God created them. He knows the best way to use them. Don't, don't tell Hollywood, Hollywood this because they won't understand. But, but God, God has proprietary rights to his created things. He created sex. He wants us to use it appropriately. And part of appropriate use of sex is steering away from that which is inappropriate. And, th and that's what this passage is about. By and large, this is describing two usages of sex. There's the appropriate usage and the inappropriate usage. We'll get to the appropriate use in a moment, but let's start with the inappropriate. Go ahead and write these down. I'll give you four points from the message today, and I'm, I'm going to give these as imperatives, as directives from the pastor to you in light of God's word. Do these things, church. Number one, reject cheap, easy, God-defying sex. We all need to be committed to this as the body of Christ. The opening verses of verse 5 echo previous sections. The author, Solomon, says, My son, be attentive to my chokmah, my wisdom. Incline your ears to my tevuna, my understanding. We've heard this before, and we wonder, where's he going now in chapter 5? That you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. The father coaches him again about the importance of wisdom, about the importance of understanding, about the importance of discretion. You might think, well, where's he going to go now? Is he going to just espouse maybe the virtues of wisdom again and go on some long tirade about that? Well, no. Actually, he gets really frank, really specific about an important area of a young man's life. The father does something here that every father should do with his son. He tells him about the dangers of sex, and he tells him about the goodness of sex. He, he helps him to see, son, Look, there's good sex and there's bad sex. There's safe sex and there's unsafe sex. And, and you got to choose which way you're going to go and, and, and how you're going to handle this good gift of God. Are you going to handle it safely or unsafely? And by the way, when I say safe sex, I'm not talking about passing out condoms to high school schoolers in town. That is not safe sex. When I say safe, safe sex, I'm talking about God's creative intent for sex in the context of a heterosexual marital union, the way that God created it, talk more about that later, but let's, let's first talk about unsafe sex. Look at verse three. But the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech, literally her palate, 
is smoother than oil. But, verse 4, feel the parallelism, the contrast. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. The the seductress now enters in verses 3 and 4. She's the forbidden woman. Or in other words, she's the wife of another man or the future wife of another man. And as Solomon describes her, he says, her lips drip honey. Keep in mind, this was written in a culture that did not use sugar to sweeten anything, desserts or otherwise. This was in a culture that didn't have chocolate as a culinary delight like we do. The sweetest and most satisfying edible treat in this culture was honey. And the description here is that of the best honey that drips right off the honeycomb. And the author, what's fascinating here is that he compares this forbidden woman to that good pleasure. It's like this. If anybody tells you that, that sin's not fun, you take them to this verse. You let them know, sin is fun. But there's, there's an edge to it. There's a consequence. You can't have chapter three. You can't have verse three without chapter four coming right behind it. By the way, Solomon is a master poet, and he's using a few different poetic features here in the text. Let me just explain a couple of them. One of the things that we see throughout this passage is what's called euphemism. And, you know, when an author wants to cloak something erotic in subtle or metaphoric language, they use euphemism. So if you've read through the Song of Solomon, it's all the way throughout the Song of Solomon. It's a way to speak frankly frankly about sexuality without being vulgar or profane or crass. So Solomon here is going to use euphemistic language to talk about the beauty of sex. There's another literary feature here as well. There's a device, especially in verses 3 and 4, which, call, which is called double entendre, meaning it has, it's language that has a double meaning. And the double entendre here, with reference to the woman's lips and to her palate, what he's referring to is both her speech and also her literal lips. In other words, she's using language in order to seduce him, but also her lips themselves, her her. She's trying to seduce her prey with with the kisses of her mouth, if you want to say it that way. And and on the speech side of the double entendre, you might say, well, how is she seducing this this man? Maybe she's flattering him. Maybe she's inflating this young man's ego. Maybe she's saying things like, you're so handsome, you're so understanding, you're, you're so much better as a listener than my lousy husband is. Let's spend some time together. And, and some man might think, oh, it's just a little harmless flirting. There's nothing wrong with this. It's okay to look at the merchandise in the window as long as you don't buy it, or so some men think. Then there's the other side of this double entendre. Literal references to her lips, to her palate. Her kisses are sweet and alluring like sweet honey. She, she tastes good, or so he thinks. But afterwards, she is bitter as wormwood. You might say it this way. The honey is sweet, but the being stings. The bee stings. Or you might say it this way. Satan shows the bait, but he hides the hook here. Her her kisses are sweet. They taste like honey. And yet, they're as bitter as wormwood. What's wormwood? Wormwood, just so you know, here's a picture of it. It's an herb. And it was... Popular in the ancient world, it grew wild, and it's 
It's the kind of plant that's sweet and pleasant to smell, but the taste is horrible. It's got this bitter, nasty aftertaste. And so I think that's informative here in terms of what he's saying. It's, it might smell good at first, but the taste is bad. The, the plant that he's probably referring to here is what's called Artemisia abyssinthium. Quite common in the ancient world. And, and in fact, not only is it bitter, if you taste it in large doses, it can actually be fatal to you. So the idea behind this wormwood is a rendezvous with this seductress may be fun at first, but it ends in disaster. Solomon also calls this temptress. He likens her to some, uh, a sword, a two-edged sword, saying she's sharp as a two-edged sword. In other words, she'll cut you to pieces if you're not watching, young man. You know, swords, swords have their purpose in the ancient world. They're like guns in the modern era. They have their purposes, they're good, but in the arms of a fool, they can do a lot of damage. And that's the idea here. Sex in the hands of a fool is dangerous. Ray Ortland says it this way, sex is like fire in the fireplace. It keeps us warm. Outside of the fireplace, it'll burn your house down. And, and that's the idea here. There's a good use of sex. This is not good. This, this man who's being seduced, is about to burn his house down, so to speak. Look at verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow to the path, follow the path to Sheol. Here we are at Hotel California again, leading him to a place of disaster. But look at verse 6. This is interesting. This is a new spin on this seductress. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. She's not even aware of the evil that she's involved in. So not only, it's interesting in verse 6, because this is one of the only pictures of this woman in this way, in Proverbs anyway. It, it presents her as a predator, but also as the victim of her own devices. She, you might say it this way, she's a person to be pitied just like him. And from my perspective, these people, men and women both, they're inflamed with their lusts. They are not strong, independent people like our world might identify them. Instead, they are unknowingly slaves to their own desires. And they're, you know, I see these Hollywood celebrities and they just, they go from sexual partner to sexual partner and from marriage to marriage. And you see this with professional athletes as well, just, just moving from one liaison to another or one short-term arrangement to another. And they're the envy of all society. Look, look at these people. They have all of these, these advantages over the rest of us. And, and yet, what this is saying is that people like that, people who live their lives like that, they're not people to be envied. They're people to be pitied. They're slaves to their own impulses. And they, they will never know the lasting joy and the delight of a monogamous relationship built on trust. They'll never know it. Instead, they have forfeited God's good gift. When I was in high school, I'll just tell you, I mean, it, was, it was horrible. I was in that athletic world where, you know, guys on my basketball team, they would celebrate and parade around to everybody the women that they slept with. And it was like notches on their belt. It was something to be celebrated. Everybody kind of applauded their efforts. That was sick and twisted. 
And that's so ever-present in our society right now. Young people, hear me on this. Let me, let me just be a loving pastor to you right now. And middle-aged folks, y'all listen in and y'all amen this. Old folks, y'all amen this too. But let me speak directly to the young people. Beware of cheap, easy, God-defying sex. It tries to sell you something that doesn't ultimately satisfy. There's something better that God has for you. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's not just a 3,000-year ethic, 3,000-year-old ethic from Solomon. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, to, to young Pastor Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's a worthwhile thing to go after, young people. And then those of you who are middle-aged and a little older, it's not like, okay, now that I've passed that season of youth, I'm, I'm good to go until I'm dead. No, you gotta, you got to keep fighting this battle until you're dead. So reject cheap, easy, God-defying sex. Write this down as number two. Let's go a little deeper into this. Restrain yourself, men and women, verse by verse. Restrain yourself from regrettable sexual indiscretions. Verse 7, and now, O sons. Here's a father talking to his sons, trying to, to bestow on them wisdom and the ways of the world. And now, O sons, listen to me. You can hear her, even the desperation in his voice. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Don't even play around with sin. Don't even go near it. Stay on the right path, the good path. Remember the two paths, stay on this path, the God-honoring path. Don't go off track, young man. If if a seductress comes your direction, you go the other direction. Don't even go near her house. Don't even go near the gate, the door of her house. Applicationally, I would just say this. Let's take this into the modern world. If you're in, a, in an office space where you can't control the situation or you're, you're involved in some temptation that you, you can't get away from, let me give you some advice. Get a new job. Go somewhere else where, where you're not going to be tempted to destroy your family. If you can't watch TV without falling prey to sexual sin, get rid of your TV. It's not that important to have in your house. Put filters on your computers. Put filters on your phone. Fight this with everything you got. Look, we're, we're in the fight of our lives right now. The sexual revolution is out of control. Are we going to live different lives or not? Are we going to be committed to this or not? And look, if you're struggling with this, if this is an issue in your heart, in your life, let me give you some advice. If you're a man, find some other men, like-minded men who love you, who can hold you accountable in these areas so that you can live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Get, get more than one man. If you're a woman, get more than one woman involved in that. And don't just get some person in your life who's going to keep you accountable like, oh, you sinned this last week? Me too. Shucks. Oh, let's not do that anymore. Get somebody who's going to hold your feet to the fire. 
Because that's the only way we're going to win this. You know, some people might call that accountability. Yes, account- I just call it wisdom. This is wise in this modern day world. They're coming after us. We have each other. Let's use each other to, to help in this way. The reason this is so important is because if you play with sin, you'll get burned. And I mean, the stakes are high. If you make allowances for your flesh, you're going to put your marriage in jeopardy. You're going, to re- you're going to put the respect of your children in jeopardy. You're going to put the respect of the community in jeopardy if you fall into sin in this way. All it takes is one silly, sinful, fleeting indiscretion. Keep your way far from her, Solomon says. Do not go near the door of her house. Look at verse 9, lest you give your honor. Everybody see that in verse 9? Your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Let me just say this. Your sexuality is a gift from God. He's given it to you. Solomon describes it here as your honor. And another way to translate this Hebrew word, it's the Hebrew word hod, and it can mean your manhood or your vigor or even your virility. So this thing, this honor that God has given you, he's saying here, don't just toss it away like something insignificant. Guard that, protect that, lest you give to others and your years to the merciless. The great cautionary tale of this in the Old Testament is Samson. You know, he was the stooge that allowed his sexual appetites to lead him into the hands of the merciless Philistines. He gave his honor to Delilah, and she was the vixen that led to his downfall. In our modern day world, I'll just tell you, everything is conspiring against you to take your honor from you. I mean, even the U.S. government is trying right now to take it from you. You have this thing, you have this gift, you have your sexuality, and everybody's like, oh, it doesn't really matter, just give it to whoever. We're just animals. Just do your animal instinct. We're not animals. In fact, that's the thing that differentiates us from the rest of the animal kingdom is that we actually can have self-control. So why would we give in to that? What's scary is, so not only have, in our society, we moved from the acceptance of premarital sex to the acceptance of extramarital sex, now we're moving on into homosexual sex and even other stuff. And it's like, where, where else are we going to go? I mean, LGBTQ+, like, how many more letters are they going to add to this? Like, where does this end? And you might say, where do I draw the line? Where do, here's where to draw the line. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to the standards of the world. Don't listen to what the world's telling you. In other words, listen to what God is saying you and guard your sexuality as this great precious gift that God has given you that you can give to your spouse and say, this is for you and for you only and for nobody else. Here's the dirty little secret that nobody will tell you, but I'll tell you. Tim and Beverly LaHaye, they wrote a book called The Act of Marriage, and they did some research in that book, and they said that on average, Christians have more fulfilling sex lives than their non-Christian counterparts. Other studies have supported the notion that married couples have more frequent and more satisfying sexual experiences than non-married couples. They don't make movies about that, but it's true. And nobody's communicating that to children. Nobody's beating that drum. Not Hollywood. It's, it's a shame for us because we've got this important task as parents, as leaders in the church, 
to pass down something better than what the world feeds to our children and say, here's a better way. Here's something more satisfying. Here's something more God-glorifying. Go after this and forget what the world has to tell you. And that protection of your sexuality, that's not just, you know, after you say, I do, I'm good. You know, I'll never struggle again. No, you, you continue in married life to fight for purity in your marital relationships. Keep your way far from her. Men in this room, if you're, if you're piddling around with sexual sin with somebody else, you better get a hold of yourself. You better get some other men in your life to help you. Don't go near the door of her house. Sometimes I wonder, like men, like they just kind of wander in place. Like, where are you going? Like, what do you have to do? You go to work, you go home, you spend time with your kids, you spend time with your wife. Like, there's nowhere else to go. You know, some men, it's like, you just kind of wander around town. Like, that's, you're just asking for danger, for some bad thing to happen. And, and here, it's, watch how it spirals downward in verses 8 through 12. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. That's bad. Look at verse 10. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength. And your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan. Think Samson and Delilah. When your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, look at verse 12, because this is very artistic. What Solomon does is he puts himself in the mindset of his son later in life after he's failed to listen to his dad. Some of you dads might want to try this on your sons later. And here's what he says, hypothetically. Son, you don't want to be like this. Look at the open quotation marks in verse 12. How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers, including my dad, or incline my ear to my instructors. Verse 14, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Solomon is writing as if to say, I don't want you to have to say this someday, son. I don't want you to have to be at the end of your life and look back with regret. So be teachable. Heed my counsel. Don't fall prey to some ill-advised liaison. Your reputation will be shot. Your energy will be spent trying to smooth things over with an angry husband or a resentful spouse. Your wife will resent you. Your kids will disrespect you. Your life will get complicated really fast if you live a life of sexual indulgence. The irony of this, of course, is that Solomon didn't even practice what he preached in his own life. And that's a cautionary tale in itself. How many fathers out there are saying, son, do like I say and not as I do? What son is going to listen to that? Okay, let me take my foot off the gas. And just kind of pastorally process this a little bit with you. This is important because we live in a fallen world. And I know in a room like this, we're dealing with a lot of issues. And many who come to Christ come to Christ with sexual baggage and sexual sin in their past. I read some statistics on this this last week. One expert in the field of human sexuality estimates that 85% of men have premarital sex and 25% of women do as well. And those stats are 10 years old, so it, who knows? It's probably higher now. That same expert estimates that 25% of men 
and 15% of women commit adultery at some point in their marriage. Half of the men and a third of the women in this country look at porn once a month. I'm actually pretty sure that those stats are outdated. And I remember listening to a pastor once talk on this to a room full of evangelicals, and he said, look, the statistics would show that evangelical kids, kids who grow up in a church that's evangelical, broadly speaking, 75% of them are having sex before marriage. That's the world that we live in. That's the, the problem. Like I said, we're in a dogfight. We're in the fight of our lives with this issue. And in many ways, we're losing. And I, and I want to say this. Wherever you are in that, whatever mistakes you have made, whatever your past says about you, you are not defined by your sin if you are in Christ Jesus. And not only can you turn from that and remove yourself from that, but I believe that, so to speak, the Lord can restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. The Lord can help you to turn away from those bad memories. Maybe they never go away completely. But turn away from that evil and that sin in your past and create new, better, wholesome memories in the future. God can do that in your life. And if you've let me just give some advice to parents in this room right now. If you're one of those parents who's made mistakes and you're trying to help your kids do different, can I just give you some advice? When they're ready, when the time is right, go to them and say, look, honey, sweetie, your mom and I, we made these mistakes and we shouldn't have, and we want you to avoid them. Be honest with them and help them to avoid the problems that you made. Now, look, now let me talk to the 25% or whoever out there who was, uh, didn't have sex before marriage, you don't have sex outside of marriage. That's good. That's, that's what we want for our children. That's, that's what's best in terms of a biblical ethic. But can I give you some advice this morning? Don't get cocky. Be humble. Be thankful that the Lord and his goodness protected you from that. And keep in mind what the book of Proverbs says elsewhere, pride comes before a fall. Don't be prideful, be thankful, be, be gracious as well to others who maybe didn't have some of the opportunities that you had growing up. And if you're single this morning, let me just talk to you for a moment. If you're single or widowed, I mean, God has called every person in this room, at least for one stage of their life, to be celibate. Nobody's born married. <laughs> so we all have to embrace this at some point in our life. And, and if you are single right now, embrace the celibacy that God has called you to underneath his sovereignty if that lasts 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And honor the Lord with that. Don't listen to what the world says. They don't know what they're doing. Honor God and honor the ethic that's presented here in Proverbs 5 and restrain yourself from regrettable sexual indiscretions.
All right, let's transition. So the Bible, aren't you, aren't you thankful for this? The Bible is not just a list of prohibitions. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. The Bible's more than that. And I'm thankful for the prohibitions because when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. He's trying to protect you from something. But also, not only does he say don't do this, he's saying go do this. If you have that opportunity, this is the ideal. Go after this. What are we going after? What's the goodness of God in the midst of this? It's this. Write this down as number three. Rejoice in God's provision for sexual fulfillment. Rejoice in it. Whether you're single or married, you can rejoice that God has given us this gift. Celebrate it. Even, you know, and if you are married, I would say revel in God's goodness. Let me state something obvious here. Hollywood did not create sex. God did. And he created it for us to enjoy. And it's not just for procreation, although I'm all for procreation. There's aspects of this in Proverbs 5 that have nothing to do with procreation. It's just a good gift. And what Hollywood would tell you is that the greatest experience sexually is the one night stand. Or it's the, you know, the, the drunken dalliance of some frat party or whatever. Like, that is not God's best. It's so much better in the beautiful, wonderful, life-giving marriage that God has created for us to enjoy sex with. And by the way, let me say this too. Christian kids, those of you who grew up in a Christian home, we, we shouldn't demonize sex, but don't, don't idolize it either. Don't worship it. Worship the giver of all good gifts, including marriage and sex. Now, the following passages, I'm, I'm going to read them. I'm going to explain some of them, not all of them. You can thank me for that later. This is the kind of passage that can get a pastor into a lot of hot water, so I'm going to, I'm going to stick pretty close to my notes. Look at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? There's some euphemistic language here. What Solomon is basically saying is, do not inseminate another person besides your wife. Next verse. Let them be for yourself alone, verse 17, and not for strangers with you. Your streams, in other words, this is the Old Testament equivalent to what the author of Hebrews says when he says, keep the marriage bed holy. Keep it pure. Should another man be given access to your spouse? God forbid. Should another woman be given access to, to her husband? God forbid that that would be the case. Marriage is exclusive. Marriage is proprietary. You, you become one flesh. You even, Paul would say, own each other's bodies, and that's a good thing. It's for y'all and y'all alone, and nobody else should be allowed to come into that covenant of holy matrimony. You know, I, whenever I do weddings, and I do this quite a bit as a pastor, I, I make the couples recite vows to one another. These vows, and if they don't want to do it, then go to the justice of the peace. You got to do this if you're going to do, if I'm going to officiate your wedding. And this is what I tell them to do. This is the vow that I lead them through. I turn to the groom and I say, groom, do you take this woman to be your wife? 
to live together in the holy covenant of marriage, to love her, to comfort her, to honor and lead her as Christ does the church in sickness and in health and forsaking all others to be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. If so, answer, I do. And I want to hear the I do. They got to say it. I don't, I'm not this intense at weddings. I'm preaching right now, okay? So I say it nicer than that. But I want to hear the I do. I want them to make that vow. Then I turn to the bride and I say, bride, do you take this man to be your husband, to live together in the holy covenant of marriage, to love him, to honor him, to submit to him as the church does to Christ in sickness and in health and forsaking all others to be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? If so, answer, I do. You might say, Pastor Tony, that sounds so antiquated. That sounds so Victorian. Why do you do that? I want to hear the I do's. I want you who go to the weddings out there in the audience to hear their I do's. Mom and dad need to hear that. Grandma and grandpa need to hear that. The witnesses need to hear that. And by the way, the witnesses who are married at the weddings, I want them to hear that. And I want them to be reminded of their vows that they made back when Ronald Reagan was president. (laughs) Going to weddings is this great opportunity. It's like, oh yeah, I forgot. I made a vow. Let's be reminded. Let them be for yourself alone. That's Solomon's way of saying, this is y'all's thing and nobody else's. And not for strangers. Look at verse 15, back to the euphemism. Some of you might want to brace yourself for this. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. By the way, verse 18 is framed as a prayer. Solomon's praying as as a father for his son. And and dads out there, you better be praying for this for your kids. He's praying, not not only is he praying for his kids, as you'll see in a moment, he's praying for his grandkids. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. The word for doe here in Hebrew, it's, it's actually better translated a female mountain goat or a female ibex. I have a picture here of a mountain goat. And just, just so you know, that was a compliment in Hebrew society. Some of you men, y'all, y'all need to stay away from this compliment with your wives at home, all right? <laughs> but in Hebrew society 3,000 years ago, you can see this even in the Song of Solomon, you would, you would you know, use a metaphor to speak of your wife with terms like deer or mountain goat or doe. And it, it was an epitome of their graceful and majestic beauty, Okay? And, and another thing, too, with those kinds of creatures, domesticated otherwise, you approach them with care and with tenderness and with gentleness. And that's how a man should be with his wife. That's how a man should be sexually with his wife. Gentleness and tenderness. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated, always in her love. The Hebrew word for breast here could be rendered lovemaking. Either way, the point is clear. And it's funny because metaphor and euphemism give way to something literal here. 
And this is about as explicit as it gets right here. And yet at the same time, it's wholesome. It's not pornographic, neither is it puritanical. It's not gratuitous and neither is it prudish. This is how the Bible handles sex. And the idea here in verse 19, it's, it's really simple. Sexual love is addictive. Lovemaking is delightful. It's intoxicating. God created it that way. It's a good gift for us to use in the context of marriage. I read a biography once of the, the church father, Augustine, fourth century African theologian, great theologian, love Augustine, great writings on the Trinity and, and other theological themes, but uh, I'll be critical of him. That he does something, and some of the church fathers do something as well. Whenever a passage like this shows up and it's, a talk, it's talk about human sexuality, it's like they don't know what to do with it. They just kind of freak out. And so what they do is they allegorize it as God's love for his people, or even they do even weirder stuff than that, like our love for the scriptures or something. And I'm just like, what? are you even reading this? What are you doing? And I think what happened in that world is that they were so influenced by the, the Platonist ideas of their time that they, they would think of corporeal flesh and sexuality as some kind of evil, wicked thing, not like the metaphysical world. That's the real cool thing, and everything else is just carnal and wicked. Can I just tell you, that's not how God sees it. That's not how God sees sex. That's not how God sees procreation. That's not how God sees the relationship between man and woman and marriage. I mean, this is the celebration of sex right in the Bible. This is in the Bible, Pastor Tony. Yes, this is in the Bible. And it's even stronger than you think because verse 19 is basically a command. Be intoxicated always with her love. Be drunk on your love with your wife. Husbands in the room. Who talks like that? The Bible talks like that. Enjoy each other. Be inebriated with each other. Wife with your husband and husband with your wife. And speaking of intoxication, look at verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Good question. Why should you? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. So one final thing here. So Solomon makes a case. This whole chapter is making a case for the beauty of sex inside of marriage. And he talks about the negatives of sex outside of marriage. He talks about the beauties of sex inside of marriage. And if that's not enough to persuade you, let's say you get to verse 20 and you're like, I'm not persuaded yet. Well, then he invokes the deity to get you motivated. And he says this, this is, one final solemn, solemnic warning. Verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Uh-oh. What's that mean? God is watching. God is present. And he ponders all of his paths. Notice the Lord is capitalized there. So we're talking about Yahweh. And I find that fascinating that Solomon juxtaposes this chapter on sex with Yahweh. He puts them together here. And you might say, oh, that, that's, so, 
That's so dirty. That's so bad. Why would he do that? No, no. Yahweh created sex, and he's right to see, to see it operating in the right way, and he's right to punish it when it's not operating in the right way. Yahweh was the one that created man and woman. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so here he is. And, and notice, God is not absent in our world. He's not the clockmaker of Thomas Jefferson's deism, who just winds the clock and then takes off. You guys figure things out. No, he's here. He's present. He's watching for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. And he ponders all of his paths. The Lord is transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's here and he's watching. And write this down as a fourth point. This is the kicker. If, if all else fails, remember this. Remember that God judges all of our actions. And let that motivate you to the right action in terms of your sexuality. Reject cheap, easy, God-defying sex. Restrain yourself from sexual indiscretions, rejoice in God's provision for sexual fulfillment. And then at the end, remember that God judges all of our actions. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he, the Lord ponders all of his paths. Verse 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. The idea here is that you might be able to fool your spouse about your sexual sin. You might be able to fool your friends into thinking, oh, he's, he would never do that. You might be able to fool Pastor Tony and the elders of verse by verse. It's been done before. But you can't fool God with your sexual sin. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. He sees everything, and you will not escape the consequences of your sin. Okay, let's, let's bring this all together. In fact, as we're bringing this all together, let me zoom out, if we could, on the sum total of Scripture. And let's balance grace and truth as we close. What do we see here in Proverbs 5? We see God's original intent for sex and for marriage. And the sobering reality, as I've conveyed already with statistics, is that most Americans have fallen short of this at some stage of their life. Most of us have sin in this category. And, and even if you don't have sin, according to Proverbs 5, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that any man who looks lustfully upon another woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. So if Proverbs 5 doesn't get you, Matthew 5 will. <laughs> and even if you're innocent of that sin, there's still the promise in Scripture that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all stand before God condemned as sinners. But here's the good news. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. If you find yourself here this morning, guilty, condemned for your sexual misdeeds, I'm not here to condemn you. And you don't have to remain in a state of condemnation. The Bible has made a way for you to be forgiven of all of your sin. And it's, I talked about this last week. It's this simple. It's repentance and faith. You repent of your sin. You turn to a holy God and you say, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I deserve condemnation. I deserve an eternity apart from you. You turn from your sin and you embrace by faith Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what he's done for you. He died on a cross for those sins. He rose from the dead. Mark talked about it just a second ago. He's not still on a cross and he's not in an empty grave or in a grave. He's, the grave is empty. He died for you and he rose from the dead. And you can be saved from your sins and you can live a new life, even if, if those sexual sins are, are, are recent. The Lord can forgive you and pay for all of your past, present, and future sins. And as far as Proverbs 5 is concerned, this is the truth that Jesus wants you to embrace as a believer. This is the ideal that we should all strive for. Jesus offers us grace. And then Jesus, if you remember, he told a sin-stained Samaritan woman in John 4 who had five husbands and was living with a man who was not her husband. You might say, she's too far gone. There's no way Jesus would save her. Jesus offered her living water. Jesus told her, I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. And she believed and she was saved. She was one of the first to get saved. That's John 4. And then what did Jesus tell the sinful woman in John 8? This is the way forward. Go and sin no more. In light of what Christ has done for you, in light of all this goodness and grace, go and stop sinning. Paul said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have new life in Christ Jesus. Live in that freedom. And when you mess up along the way, you fall upon the grace of God. And then someday we'll be dead. And we'll have new resurrection bodies that never sin and are never tempted again. That hasn't happened yet. Front row's excited about this. It's coming. In the meantime, let's live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. Amen. Y'all with me? Let's pray to that end. Just bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you are the perfect embodiment of grace and truth, and you offer both to us. In your mercy, Lord, you reach out, you reached out and you saved sinners like us, and you, you died upon a, a bloody, painful, humiliating cross to pay for our sins past, present, and future. 
And Lord, we worship you for that. We thank you for that. And Lord, in light of that, in light of that truth, that all of our sins have been forgiven, all of our sexual misdeeds as well as our misdeeds otherwise, all of them, Lord, have been paid for by your grace, by your sacrifice, by your atonement. And we don't have to be victimized by them for eternity. And yet, Lord, we see this in the scriptures and, and we so desperately want to live lives that are pleasing to you, no longer inundated with the sins of this world, but different. God, help us to do that. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given to us that can propel us forward. We know that there are forces in this world right now looking to take us down, looking to take down the men in this room and the women in this room and to take down our children. And Lord, there's a greater power in us that is in the world. And we ask you, Lord, to do that thing that only you can do to help us, to sustain us, to strengthen us, to even depend upon the church and the people in this room and one another to experience victory over sin. Help us to do that, Lord, we pray. And all along the way, Lord, from now until your return, from now until we're in those resurrection bodies, and even after that, we will celebrate the work of Jesus on the cross. We worship you, Lord. We thank you.